We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and this is the midweek edition as we record this show on Thursday night, August 18th, 2022. The Chicago White Sox had a tough series against the Houston Astros, and they were able to split that series against a superior ball club. The good news, Detroit played a good spoiler, splitting their four games with Cleveland, so the White Sox didn't lose any ground for Monday. Not great news. Kansas City didn't even bother to show up against Minnesota, so the White Sox are back in third place. But they traveled to Cleveland this weekend. It's an opportunity to make ground on the Guardians. It's also an opportunity to lose ground, too. In this episode, we'll spend time previewing that series as the White Sox are enlisting the help of Elvis Andrews to fill in at shortstop for Tim Anderson and Lurie Garcia with now both on the injured list. We have a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. We knew it would be a tough series against the Houston Astros for the White Sox. Two come-from-behind victories for the White Sox, almost a third, and then a butt-whooping, losing 21-5. to Overall, how do you feel about the White Sox in this four-game series against the Astros? Overall, it's fine because, you know, as you mentioned, they got a split out of it. It's what they needed, you know, especially with Cleveland splitting. Like, uh, this could have been so much worse. It could have been losing three out of four while Cleveland ran away with it. All of a sudden, you're looking at three or four-game deficit. So it's fine. I think in terms of confidence boosting, it kind of feels like like if you could take the whole four games and treat it like a like one basketball game, like I'm thinking of like a March Madness game where like the number 15 seed is giving the two seed a hell of a game for the first like 25 minutes. Like, you know, they have a slight lead going into the uh, halftime and then they come out with some some good sets in the second half. And all of a sudden, like somebody gets into foul trouble, (laughs) game gets away, they lose by 17. It was closer than the scoreboard said, but ultimately the run differential or the point differential uh, says that the talent eventually made itself known. And that's kind of what it feels like here. And it's it's hard to know whether that's just, you know, 
Lucas Giolito plus the low leverage guys uh, and the diminishing effort from a tough four game series and already looking ahead to Cleveland versus actual talent because you know it's it's they won two out of four they could have won three out of four like three out of four games were well played and they looked evenly matched so if one game just happened to get away and by that you know it's too deep a hole and they just started turning their attention towards more winnable games like can't necessarily fault them for that and i think the energy level from the first games uh first three even even the one they lost was like representative of a team that looks more engaged that makes a loss uh, like the finales uh, more forgivable. I'm with you there. I, I kind of want to just take the last game and, and throw it in the trash. But it also brings an opportunity, Jim, for an oldie segment that we've done over nine years podcasting mm-hmm. that we're going to bring back here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I want to start with the good. Game one through three, the pitching. I mean, the starting pitching, Johnny Cueto, eight innings, only two runs allowed. One of it was earned. Dylan Cease, I get that the Cease versus Verlander matchup did not quite live up to the hype, but Cease only allowed three earned runs in five innings. Kopech only allowed three earned runs in six innings. After last year, where Houston, other than Carlos Rodon, really beat up on White Sox starting pitching. It was great to see Cueto, Cease, and Kopech keep the Astros to three runs or fewer. And then the bullpen in games one through three, eight scoreless innings combined. And they only allowed four hits and three walks in those eight innings. They struck out nine. I was really impressed with how well the White Sox pitched against the Houston Astros gym in games one through three. The way I look at it is, you know, watching the results from finale and seeing you know Velasquez get smoked and Ruiz get smoked like if they had to pick one game to to suck that was the game because yes. you know <laughs> I would say like in the in the second game on Tuesday Tony Larusa gambled you know the White Sox were down three to one and you know with so many games in a row they're in the middle of what 21 games in 20 days and they have 12 left after this so they have, you know, a bigger picture of bullpen to manage and they're trailing by two and, you know, Houston can put up a quick crooked number. So you get in trouble trying to chase wins where wins may not be. So like instead of going to Lopez and Graveman, like he tried to, you know, just steal an inning with Velasquez, it worked. Tried to steal an inning with Ruiz, it worked. Like he he got through that, then all of a sudden it starts t- taking a turn for the better with Jimmy Lambert, and all of a sudden uh, the White Sox are leading. So it's it was cool to see uh, Larusa gamble and having the low leverage guys help it pay off. Like that was huge. I think you know it's one thing to see Lopez continue smoking guys, and it's it's nice to see Hendricks on his role of converted saves, but to have those like you know minor victories within victories of just having, you know, being able to steal an inning, Jimmy Lambert coming in, providing support to Lopez and like being able to not have to push Kendall Graveman on back-to-back days. If Graveman truly isn't good at it, like that's cool. That helps a lot. So uh, that was, that was neat to see. Um, You know, as you mentioned, the starting pitching was certainly good enough. We saw the, you know, the, the Astros score 37 runs over four games in the ALDS. So basically like even to start like Dylan ceases, 
represents progress to where he clearly doesn't have it. He's, he's clearly battling. The Astros are making him battle. And he ultimately keeps his head above water and keeps the White Sox in the game. Like that's, that's progress, even if it represents a step back. And who knows if Andrew Vaughn makes that catch on the warning track that, you know, I would say 85% of right fielders probably catch. He has some plotters out there who probably don't get it, but I would say like any, you know, decent right fielder makes that catch like that start could look completely different. So he didn't get the support he needed against a good team. And, you know, the line somewhat reflects that. But yeah, the, the run prevention was good. And I certainly think like watching some of the flies uh, travel, both the pole field and opposite field, that man, it's uh, the Crawford boxes make a really big difference just in terms of the kind of threat that the Astros pose. I, I think, you know, especially since the White Sox can't pull the ball in the air the way the Astros can to get those cheap homers, like having the relatively symmetrical playing field that the White Sox have and having no real cheap homers. I mean, it's an easy place to hit a homer, but there are no like, how the hell did that get out? Especially with the way the ball's acting this year, like there are far fewer of the accidental homers. And I think that gives the White Sox pitching staff some breathing room that we didn't see in Houston to where just everything seemed a lot more fraught. If you are searching for hope, that the White Sox can get on a run, make the postseason, and do some damage in the postseason, put in the tape, watch the pitching in games one through three against Houston. The White Sox, even with this defense and how bad the defense can be, the White Sox have the ability to keep a team like the Houston Astros at three runs or fewer. And they did it in three straight games. Monday through Wednesday, and with how poorly this offense at times hits, especially for power, it still can generate four runs, and that was the question we had coming into this series. Can the White Sox score more than three runs in any of these games to help support the pitching staff? They scored four in back-to-back games, and they won those games. And if they scored four runs in game three, they would have also won that game. And the conversation and the series outlook would outcome would have been uh, different than we're, we're talking about right now. So if you're looking for hope, the way that Cueto, Cease, Kopak, and the bullpen pitched in games one through three should deliver some hope. Another good, Yoan Makata. Now, he went four for 15 in the series, Jim. He had one hit in each game, but he had big hits in this series. Game-winning hits mm-hmm. in game one and two. He had a three-run homer in game four. I know it was the laugher. But even though he only had four hits in this series, Yohan Makata drove in seven runs. He had seven RBIs in this series. We've been waiting for Yohan Makata to wake up offensively. Can this series be a personal spark for Makata where, okay, now he's starting to build up more confidence and he gets on a hot streak? I don't like putting my eggs in the Makata basket. Like just, it's been a rough few years in terms of just trying to figure out exactly what he is and what he can provide. And especially this year with the compound failure from the left side from Yasmani Grandal, like it's just been really tough. And so like anytime he gets on a roll or, you know, Grandal has a couple good games or Gavin Sheets has some, some moments, I think like, okay, here's the balance that the lineup sorely needs. And then they go dormant again. So I really, you know, I, I guess, I kind of treat it the way I'm looking at the White Sox overall and that like, I'm not expecting them to turn a corner anymore. I'm just taking it like a series at a time, like hoping for moments. And I think at least Moncada gave moments. He had a really, yeah, I wrote about this in the, uh, 
Wednesday recap saying that you know, Moncada had a maddening game because he had a big hit, but he also struck out looking. And he had a great play in a bunt, but he also lost track of the outs and didn't start a double play and said like settled for the force at second when a double play was possible. Like he was up, he was down, uh, like the white Sox, He makes you, uh, hate before he can make you feel love. Like that just seems like it's a uh, part of the deal. So I I'm trying to keep my distance when it comes to getting excited about Moncada. You know, the, I keep coming back to the idea, you know, when he gets on these minor roles is that like Connor Gillespie with defense would be fine for the White Sox right now. <laughs> as, as bad as that sounds for a guy with a five year, what, 70 something million dollar extension, you know, just, uh, you know, making, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's going to be making 20 plus million over the course of his deal. And, you know, annually at the end of it, like, that's not what you want, but for this year, for the purposes of this team that just needs like, chances they, they need chances like the in Mankata like delivered with chances like that was what was cool like he had the two singles he had the homer he had the uh the double like he just you know he came up with he converted on some chances which I think is basically all I'm hoping for and that's nice to see so uh anything that can help get people off his ass a little bit I think is what we're looking for here and I don't think he's going to have the stretch that redeems himself and and turns like the haters into fans. But I think Mankata basically is going to be a battleground for this entire season, maybe in the off season and next season too. And as long as his contract goes, but this is what I'm hoping for. And that just, when he comes to the plate, he's at least doing enough to have a pulse and to make me think like, this is possible. Like Adam Engels, like a hitter. I don't really see much possible from the way he's swinging the bat, just looks lost. The, uh, pop-ups go to the right side if he makes contact like it's just it's not there for him mm-hmm. so you know when he comes to the plate I think like oh, I'm hoping for a miracle but Mankata just like gives you a shot and that's fine for now based on what he's shown before all right so let's move over to the bad Lucas Giolito three innings eight hits seven earned runs allowed one walk he struck out five he struck out the most Astros batters out of the White Sox starters his season ERA is now 5.34 Jim we've been saying how much Giolito has been struggling this season anything new that you saw from Thursday I was in and out of the game uh, just because uh day game taking care of the kid and such like you know it's <laughs> normally when uh you know i'm watching the game while watching my son like if i miss something i'll go back and watch it but the way the score is unfolding it's like i'll wait for the condensed game <laughs> like this is uh sometimes i give myself days off as a treat as a reward for otherwise being a good soldier and this is one of the games so i'll fully admit that i have not broken down the tape like crunched some film but based on what i saw it was just a good offense beating an underwhelming arsenal. Like, I think this is what Giolito stuff looked like. You know, I think in previous starts, like against the Royals, against the Tigers, like lesser offenses. Um, I mentioned this in the wake up call, but like those are the starts he needs to like do well enough on to give the White Sox a chance to win, to put a dent in his ERA, because I think good offenses like the Astros are going to figure it out. They're going to spoil pitches that other teams might put into play weekly. Uh, they might hammer pitches uh, that other teams might miss or foul back. Like they're going to, you know, more or less capitalize on mistakes. And Giolito either makes a lot of mistakes or his, you know, I would say maybe like not his true mistakes, but maybe his pitches that he only maybe executes like 60% as well as he wants to get smoked, you know, versus whereas like against like a team like the Tigers, that might be good enough. Like the Astros, I think just 
expose them. And so hopefully as the you know season continues to you know limp forward for him that he'll get the luck of the draw when it comes to opponents and he'll be a suitable back end ro- you know rotation starter. Like as you mentioned I think on Twitter, was it was that where you drew the firestorm by saying he won't start a postseason game? Yes. If the White Sox get there like yeah, if it's a te- against a team like the Astros I see it, you know, I, I kind of get it. Like, I think if this keeps up, you know, like should his ERA like float towards six, we're talking about like a postseason roster spot even at that point. Uh, so that's, I think where the conversation is trending towards, but I think the Astros are a kind of team that will make him uh, look worse than he actually is. But you know, it, it's reminiscent of the ALDS. Like that was the one moment where like, Oh, that's uh that's how the series got away from them last year. The Astros hit nine foul balls off of Giolito's four-seam fastball, and they fouled off his changeup 10 times. He threw 22 changeups against the Astros, and 10 of them were fouled off. Almost 50% of the changeups that he threw resulted in a swing that was fouled off, and the Astros swung at 17 of the 22 changeups that Giolito threw, and they only whiffed three times. This was a team that was very prepared against Lucas Giolito. The average exit velocity against Giolito's four-seam fastball for Houston was 96 miles per hour. The average exit velocity against Giolito's slider was 95 miles per hour. That is the hard hit velocity for batters. That's what they're aiming for, and that was the average exit velocity against Giolito on those two pitches. And the average spin rate on his slider was 1,894 RPMs. Ladies and gentlemen, that is like a 35 to 40 grade for a right-handed pitcher throwing a slider. This is a guy who's got one pitch right now. It's a changeup. And I almost think, uh, what I'm thinking, Jim, is that if if he cannot regain his velocity on the fastball, and if he cannot learn how to throw spin, here's my crazy idea. He needs to take a page out of Tim Wakefield's book and start throwing knuckleballs. <laughs> he's got the height. He's got the length. You know, be a knuckleball changeup type of pitcher. Avoid hard hit rate, you know, because the the Astros, the average exit velocity on Giolito's changeup was 82 miles per hour. That's nothing. That's weak stuff in the major leagues today. And that could easily be caught or fielded, especially if they're hit for ground ball. So why not? If he can't throw a good four seam or a slider, uh, learn how to throw a knuckleball. Yeah, basically like the airbender we're kind of talking about. Just, <laughs> there you, you go. Know, yeah. You throw any time. But yeah, that's kind of where he's at. Like in, you know, there is a uh, there's a line of demarcation when it comes to his season numbers, just, you know, before and after COVID. So who knows, maybe it just takes an off season of just getting back into, you know, workout mode to get back to where he needs to be. But it is a, a, a cause for concern just going forward about his tenability. And, you know, that's why I think he's going to be an interesting, uh, subject of off season plans and of off season discussions and rumors because he's a free agent after the year. And, you know, who knows, like if the white Sox feel like they, they're better off getting something rather than what they think Giolito can offer him, uh, you know, Perhaps that's a route that they go. So it's going to be, unfortunately, it's going to be fascinating in the wrong way versus like, you know, what we hope for. Like, is it going to be a standoff with like the extension he wants because he's pitching so well on three top 10 Cy Young finishes in a row? And I don't think that's going to happen this year. So, <laughs> so unless he uh, pulls off, 
I'd be curious how many innings he has, uh, like scoreless innings he has to throw in a row to get his ERA below uh, four. Um, can do the oh, math, man. but I don't want to. It's it's a dumb question, not really worth it. But <laughs> what did you think of like you know with Giolito going from the windup when Bregman was on second and Cease dropping the ball uh, when Bregman was on second? What did you think of that? Yeah, it, uh, it's really weird this series because yeah, so Cease dropped the ball. Uh, Kopech just let Altuve take third. Didn't even bother holding him at all. And that kind of burned him because a sacrifice fly scored Altuve. And then Giolito did the same, just let Bregman steal third base. I thought that's what the whole pitch comp thing was to help yeah. deter. Like, And the White Sox use it. So why do you still feel the need to let Astros players take third base, whether it's letting them steal third or purposely balking the ball. I, I, how I feel, Jim, I feel confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought like, you know, if it comes down to location, um, you know, and, and feeling like Bregman or whoever is going to be tipping, we're setting up, like, shouldn't that be like part of their pregame or pre-series prep or even spring training prep? Like let's not tip location as much this year you know, because we don't have to worry about, you know, multiple sets of signs. We can just work on, uh, you know, figuring out how to signal location or prepare pitchers to throw for locations with a late glove going there. Like that's, that's what I thought. Like just, it seemed like, uh, you know, maybe they just don't think about it that much because the Astros are unique, but yeah, it annoyed me just because like every time they do it, a buffoon says, Oh, they're living rent free in people's heads, which don't say that. Uh, just if you're listening to this podcast, don't say that. (laughs) You're not a big fan of that phrase. Well, basically it's like, it's a way to defend awful behavior. Like like it's kind of in a way like, you know, it's, it was clever for a while and then it just gets co-opted by people who are like, uh, you know, people get mad at something, you know, and they have good reason to get mad at like, you know, Oh, you mad at me being a jerk. I'm rent free in your head. Like, no, you're just a jerk. So just, I, I, it was clever at one point or, you know, uh, effective, but I think it's just, it's been co-opted. Uh, a new phrase needs to be discovered. So, <laughs> well, there you go. No more living rent free in anyone's heads. I, the thing that kind of aggravates me going back to just letting the Astros take 90 feet, what, whatever base it is, they're too good of an offensive team to allow that to happen. You're going to get burned and, and Kopech, he allowed a run without allowing a base hit. He walked Altuve. Altuve took second. Kopech should have maybe thrown him out. If Romy Gonzalez holds on to the throw, uh, then I think that, te- or was it Sosa Wednesday? No, it was Gonzalez. If Romy Gonzalez holds on to the throw that Kopech made to second base, I think they get Altuve. So Altuve lucked out at second base. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't even a throw to third. And... Then Alvarez hits a deep fly. It gets caught on the warning track, but that's way too deep to make a throw to home plate. And that's an easy run. Like that was an easy run for Houston to score. And only five runs were scored in that game. And you lost by a run. Like if these two teams meet up again in the postseason, I don't care how worried you are with an Astros runner on second base trying to tip the his teammate at the plate on what is possibly coming that's nothing new in major league baseball that's been around for a really long time but you got pitchcom now you have to overcome it you cannot allow free bases against the houston astros 
at all. I just, I think it's a really bad idea and that's why I'm confused. And now I'm like evolving to aggravation, just thinking about it more. I just don't think it's, it's a good idea against the Astros. Mission accomplished. Tigers, Tigers, sure. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the Astros. Like they get to second. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, that is true. All right. Uh, another bad thing. White Sox offense when there's runners in scoring position. Here's the good side of it. When it comes to loading the bases and putting runners in scoring position, the White Sox are top 10 in at-bats in Major League Baseball. They actually rank seventh in the most at-bats with bases loaded and with runners in scoring position. That's good. Lots of opportunities. When the bases are loaded, the White Sox rank 28th in Major League Baseball with a 533 OPS. When the runners in scoring position, they're a little better. A 742 OPS, but that ranks 18th in Major League Baseball. So they are the bottom half. They're the bottom three with the bases loaded. Uh, and when there's a runner on first base, they had the third most at-bats in Major League Baseball. They have the 11th best OPS. So maybe the White Sox offense just needs to pretend that there's no one ever on second and third. They're on first base and maybe they'll generate more runs. But nothing paints a clear picture on the White Sox struggles, Jim, with the bases lo- loaded then on Thursday. In back-to-back innings, they had the bases loaded with nobody out. Now they're down big, but they got a chance to put up some big innings. Andrew Vaughn hits into a double play, scores a run, but generates two outs. The next inning, they hit a sacrifice fly. They score a run. That's it. Bases loaded, back-to-back innings, no outs, and they score only two runs, where the league average right now is about two and a half runs scored uh, in that particular situation when you consider that there's still three outs to work with. Why, Jim? Why do you think the White Sox struggle so much with the bases loaded? I think it's a few things. Um, one is that when they're loading the bases, like it, it's we've talked about it before, like their singles, uh, the walks, the gradual ways they build rallies, the lack of a quick strike offense, I think often extends innings to where all of a sudden Lenin Sosa is coming to the plate with the bases loaded because the good hitters got on base. The good hitters were mm. able to like, you know, you have Jose Abreu singling, you have Yasmani Grandal drawing a walk. You have, you know, Yohan Makata reaching all of a sudden now you're down to like the seventh spot, the eighth spot, the ninth spots. And you know, they're, you know, less qualified to convert. So all of a sudden, like, you know, that's a case where, you know, that's, that's why they are, you know, that's why they're hitting in, in that spot in the order. So, some of those re- results are, you know, I guess to be expected, especially since like it's really tough to score with runners in scoring position with the bases loaded. Like pitchers, generally speaking, are tougher. Like there, there is a, you know, if you watch other teams' Twitter feeds, if you watch guys like Joe Sheehan writing about, it, just say like pitching really gets tough with with runner on third. Like it's it's never been harder to score with a runner on third in baseball history than it is right now, just with the stuff they can access when they need to. Like pitchers' emergency modes are tougher. So if you combine that with like the lesser hitters showing up, there's that. I think what also compounds it is that the White Sox plate discipline is pretty terrible. Like, you know, by and large. So when you have these pitchers who can access, you know, like maybe a little bit more spin on their slider or maybe a little bit, uh, yeah, a tick or two on their fastball. You combine that with a uh, an offense, like I'm thinking like, 
you know, looking at the uh, at-bats with runners in scoring position, like Jose Abreu uh, is 0 for 8 with the bases loaded this year. So like, you know, it's one thing, you know, for Leary to be hitless. And it's one thing for Sosa to be hitless, but like, you know, uh, Abreu being 0 for 8. Um, Josh Harrison being 0 for 8. Like, you know, these are veteran hitters who have had some good years and good times. So like, they shouldn't necessarily be exposed to this, you know, idea that like, you know, the good hitters are going to base because oftentimes they are the good hitters. But in this case, like, I think, you know, Harrison is an aggressive hitter. He goes up swinging. Uh, Abreu is an aggressive hitter. He goes up swinging. So if all of a sudden these pitchers are dipping into the reservoir of like best stuff and they're looking for a fastball and that fastball happens to be, you know, a little bit outside and they're gunning for it because they just don't have the discipline or the faith in themselves to take a pitch, work deeper in the count or the, you know, selectivity to make that work. So I think it's just a, a, you know, ideally this White Sox offense would have a few more, even like doubles, not necessarily homers, but doubles that help, you know, uh, move runners, uh, 180 feet at a time. It doesn't help that like Yasmani Grandal often, often seems like he's the one in front of everybody when the offense is moving. Like anytime there's a, you know, ball the gap, like you're watching Grandal, uh, yeah, approaching his round a second when like Luis Robert would be at shortstop right now. So that's, I think, you know, it's a series of unfortunate developments, but I think they all feed into each other. But I think if I had to put my finger on the biggest uh, issue, it would be their substandard plate discipline against pitchers who are better than ever at uh, ramping up their stuff when they need to get out of something. The White Sox only have 20 base hits this year with the bases loaded. 14 singles, 5 doubles, 1 grand slam. That was Luis Robert in Minneapolis against Sonny Gray. That's how they are hitting with the bases loaded. The good news, they have the seventh most at-bats in Major League Baseball with the bases loaded. They get guys into scoring position. They're just not capitalizing. And I know football season's around the corner. It's like a football offense that can get into the red zone, but they're kicking a lot of field goals. They're not scoring a lot of touchdowns. So something that the White Sox hitters have to improve upon and a lesson learned, they could have scored a lot more runs against the Houston Astros in this series, especially in the first three games but the White Sox were able to split. Uh, fielder's choice RBI is like the equivalent of like the 27-yard field goal. <laughs> it is. It really, really is. I'd like to see fewer of that, more base hits. The ugly, 21 runs allowed. So, Jim, what's the best way for any baseball fan to ignore a type of result like that and not make it bigger than maybe it should be when you see your team lose 21 to 5. Velasquez Ruiz Harrison as the bullpen. Easy enough to ignore. I mean, they they save the other arms. Everybody else is rested. That's the that's the positive. Take that away from it. It's it's not like, you know, uh, Larusa is going for every arm and just, you know, they're basically like throwing guys against the wall and they're getting smeared. It was just low leverage guys taking a beating and that's fine. Yeah. Again, I'm just taking game 4. And I'm throwing it in the trash, but that's the ugly, and that's the good, bad, and ugly of the White Sox, the Houston Astros series. Jim and I are going to take a quick break. But coming up next, we say hello to the new White Sox shortstop, Elvis Andrews, and preview the big weekend series as the White Sox head to Cleveland to face the first-place Guardians. You are probably drinking coffee while listening to this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. And if you do love coffee, I highly encourage you to visit drinktrade.com slash Sox Machine. 
Trade Coffee sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters, small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest coffee beans from around the world. Whether your friends call you a coffee snob or if you're like me, you're just getting into coffee, Trade's real coffee experts personally taste test over 450 roasts so they know exactly what to recommend to you. All you have to do is just take the coffee quiz, which is fun. You answer a couple of questions and you'll get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks. Trade delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you brew it at home, depending on the equipment that you have. And they guarantee that you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than 750,000 positive reviews. So right now, while you're drinking your coffee, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash machine. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Again, get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash machine and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash machine for $30 off. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. So after a few games where we saw the White Sox trot out Lurie Garcia before he got hurt, and then Lenin Sosa getting some playing time, and then Romy Gonzalez getting a couple of games at shortstop, a interesting development happened as far as roster construction. The Oakland Athletics put Elvis Andrews on waivers, but no team claimed Elvis Andrews, and then he was just outright released by the Oakland Athletics. And what's interesting is that so far this season, when you look at his season numbers, he's got a 1.6 war, according to fan graphs. And for an Oakland team that is trotting out one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball, Andrews is a average major leaguer. Gives you some credibility at the shortstop position, but Oakland's really not interested in that. And for the season, Andrews doesn't really light up as far as the offensive numbers. He's hitting 237 with a 301 on base percentage and slugging 373. But in this season of Major League Baseball, that is a 97 weighted runs created plus. So he's 3% below league average with eight homers and 30 RBIs. He's walking almost 8% of the time and he only strikes out 16% of the time. So here's Elvis Andrews 
to help patch up shortstop. What is he bringing to the White Sox, Jim? Well, theoretically, he's bringing, you know, as you mentioned, an okay bat, like fine. It's, you know, basically been hovering like in the 90s when it comes to OPS plus and like it's been rough. Like it's been rough like last few years for Andrews that eight year say eight years, $120 million extension that he signed uh, with the Rangers, like did not age well. Like the second half of that went really rough. So this is a nice little uh, bounce back year or like a contract year heading into free agency, kind of a new lease on life. And when I was looking at the, you know, we talked about this before with the veterans who were you know, becoming available and Didi Gregorius had a really rough time. Uh, you know, Andrelton Simmons had nothing at the plate. And we talked about like having guys who could just like soak up um, backup plate appearances, uh, a backup job. And those guys would have been fine. But now with Garcia and, and we watched Garcia, you know, stumble in the batter's box and look like he had no legs. And so it's good to see him go on the injured list just because it looked completely untenable what he was doing and it looked like, you know, hazardous to his health, but watching him, uh, you know, when he became like not an option for regular playing time for the foreseeable future, you know, like a guy like Simmons would be pretty much as bad as like Romy Gonzalez and Sosa. Sure, more sure-handed defensively, but he's just nothing at the plate. So to have a guy like Andrews who has been fine, like an over 300 OBP, you know, occasional homers. He's got eight homers this year and 24 doubles. So he can find the occasional extra base hit. He gives the White Sox what they need. Like I'm always hesitant to say like pencil him in because we saw uh, Cesar Hernandez uh, do nothing for the White Sox when he offered kind of a similar profile, like, you know, okay, defensive second, uh, some pop, some OBP, and then just all that dried up. So uh, I always brace for the worst when it comes to like veteran uh, transplants. I always think like the White Sox are going to reject the organ when it comes to, you know, these kind of moves, but it's the best they can do under the circumstances at this point. And then you throw in like his 1800 games at shortstop, like 1800 games, like he's only uh, 33, he's going to be 34, but he started playing at age 20. So like, that's a whole lot of experience he brings. And when he saw what Sosa was doing defensively and like his actions were rushed and looked like a little bit like in over his head with the speed of the game, it's going to be refreshing to see like a guy like Andrews come in and just like make the plays. Yes. And to Andrews hitting ability, he's played 38 games at guarantee rate field, us cellular field during Andrews's career. He's not very good hitting on the South side, hitting 242 with a 288 on base percentage, slugging 369. However, Jim, at Progressive Field in 45 games, Elvis Andrews in his career hitting at that stadium has an OPS over 1,000. Hmm. He's hitting 378 against the Guardians at Progressive Field for his career with a 446 on base percentage and slugging 570. Now, I have heard this said from former major leaguers that there are just some ballparks that they feel more comfortable hitting in something about the batter's eye that they're able to really be able to see the baseball and it looks like a beach ball to them and they just hit better at certain stadiums and for Elvis Andrews that's progressive field and Tropicana field in Tampa Bay where he's got an OPS over 900 for his career you know for this weekend I'm just curious to see if he's going to make a good first impression in Cleveland for the White Sox, if he can continue to hit like this, because they certainly need it against the Guardians pitching. Yeah, I don't want to get my hopes up that much. Like, get this. your hopes up, Jim. <laughs> uh, the Hernandez experience really bummed me out. Like, I was, you know, 
I wrote a post saying like, oh, you know, he'd be an interesting option for second base. And the White Sox actually, you know, converted on that uh, and maybe looked terrible. And this is the case too, like where, you know, with Andrews, I mean, I wasn't the only one. Everybody saw like the writing on the wall, like, wait, Andrews is available? Like, not terrible. They don't have to worry about his vesting option. Like there's no strings attached. They pay on the pro rate league minimum. The White Sox better be on this. Uh, you know, basically everybody said that, you know, whether it was fans, uh, beat writers, national writers, everybody could draw the, you know, the, the, connect the dots between the two. And then gradually like, you know, a rumor here and a rumor there, they're a good fit. They're talking. It's done. Like it was just so simple how it came together. So, you know, that's, you know, it should be good. You know, there, there's no reason to think it shouldn't, but just, you know, having Hernandez, you know, just crap the bed with the way he played last year. Just, I don't want to, uh, you know, like I, I'm putting more hope uh, and, and more emphasis on what the incumbents are doing and just hope that Andrew's like just mans the position well enough to where you don't have to think about it. You have low expectations, Jim. I'm expecting Andrews to go five for 12 against Cleveland with the home run. I kid. Uh, he's part of the White Sox now. He's going to forget how to hit. Chasing Bieber from the game. <laughs> but he could. He could. He likes hitting at progressive field. So maybe we'll get a really good first impression from Elvis Andrews. I looked at his outs above average this year. So he's currently at zero, which is league average. Uh, Tim Anderson, by the way, is at negative one uh, outs. So that would be one out below average for Tim Anderson. What's fascinating about Elvis Andrews is that moving to his left, he is the second worst shortstop at Major League Baseball at minus five outs below average. Javier Baez, by the way, is the worst shortstop moving to his left towards second base. So I'm going to be curious to see on how the White Sox put Elvis Andrews as far as the defensive positioning to make up for his lack of ability to make plays moving to his left. However, moving in, on slow route on slow rollers or choppers. Elvis Andrews is seven outs above average. That's the second best in Major League Baseball for shortstops. So he's one of the best shortstops in the league moving in, one of the worst moving to his left. So something to pay attention to when you're watching Andrews play defense. That's one of the little things that I'm gonna be watching Elvis Andrews. While he's on the field this weekend against the Guardians for the White Sox, and while I watch him hit three homers, a homer in each game, because he loves hitting the progressive <laughs> field. I'm speaking it into existence, Jim. I was one of those people trying to speak it into existence. The White Sox sign Elvis Andrews. If this worked this time, it's totally going to work when the White Sox sign Aaron Judge in the offseason to play right field for the next decade, and we never have to worry about that position again. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, <laughs> When you talk about like the Andrews is, uh, you know, metrics in various directions like that, it checks out like just thinking about it, you know, not looking into the kind of plays he's making, not making, but just that does seem to be like a veteran thing to where like, you know, maybe the more demanding plays on his athleticism are you know, dwindling a little bit. But when it comes to like the charging plays, like the the idea of you know, hands and timing and just understanding like the pace of the play and which hop to get and uh, still having the ability to transfer and get rid of the ball. Like that would seem to me like, you know, he has those abilities. Whereas like watching Lenin Sosa, that's something he struggled with was just the, the chopper. I think Nick Madrigal had the same problem when he came up, just the slower plays befuddled him more just because uh, he rushed things. Like he just didn't know maybe the speed of the runner, didn't want to be on him, and uh, just the hands went kablooey. So I think, you know, probably Andrews just understands 
has a book on the league, uh, you know, knows the infields, knows like the grasses and the turfs and everything like that, and just uh, plays probably look a lot easier to him the slower they are. I just have a lot more confidence with a Elvis Andrews and Josh Harrison combination up the middle than Josh Harrison and, and a rookie shortstop right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. bless their hearts, using a Southern phrase, Lenin Sosa and Romy Gonzalez are trying their best. It's just, it's a lot right now for them to adjust to the major leagues. And they're getting thrust into this position where they got to play at a high level with the White Sox at a division race. And unfortunately, the White Sox are not in a position to give them that time for them to get the seasoning and get their feet underneath them and and adjust and learn how to play in the major leagues. They need to win games. So I think this is a, a good move for the White Sox to bring in Elvis Andrews. And we'll see on how the roster shakes out when Tim Anderson does return from his finger injury. All right. The Guardian series. This is our preview. And the Guardians right now are 63-55. They're eight games above 500. They won their last game against the Tigers, which was total BS, Jim. I don't know if you saw that game. So the Tigers are up 4-2 in the eighth inning. They strike out the side. However, in Detroit fashion, the Guardians batter reaches first base. And then the Guardians score six runs with two outs. And they win eight to four. Yeah. Total crap. I guess that's kind of payback for the, well, not, I mean, the hedges play, the, you know, play at the plate <laughs> that got uh, overturned on the Buster Posey <laughs> roll, though. Yeah, it's another case. Like the tw- Twins got burned by it. The Guardians got burned by it. In both cases, like they're, they were standing in front of the plates as, you know, before the ball came in. Like you know, the throw did not carry them into the plates. They were standing there and the throw met them there. So, you know, as much as the broadcasters like harp on it for like, you know, where are they supposed to catch it or how, where are they supposed to be? Like, you know, they, they always address the wrong part, which is where the catcher is standing as the yes. throws coming in. I love the rule. It's benefiting the White Sox. Yeah. I'm hoping like, you know, as you know, we, we just talked about like the White Sox catchers, like not learning or not caring enough to uh, learn how to signal location without giving it away to runners on second. But I'm hoping they're paying attention to this and that, you know, the coaching staff is saying like, just as a refresher, um, you know, you guys have been good at it, but just watching a couple games turn on this rule that was dormant for a while, uh, maybe, you know, just people forgot about it and started uh, pushing their luck on what they could get away with. But in this case, like they're calling it. So, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, make sure you just uh, reinforce that in your head of where you're supposed to stand before the ball gets to you. I think the rule is going to stay around and we will get a new rule for second base after what happened to Luis Robert. And well, the, yeah, the, the rules on hand in the books, it's just more a matter of just enforcing it. Right. But I think there'll be a greater enforcing next year of that rule at second base where you may get drama where, Someone gets originally called out for trying to steal second, goes to New York. No, he's actually safe because of fielder interference blocking second base. And everybody has a meltdown. Be like, well, back in the 80s. Okay, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's almost like four decades ago. Uh, (laughs) That's a long time ago. Anyways, the Guardians are in first place. They're a game ahead of Minnesota. They're two and a half games ahead of the White Sox. They are seven and three in their last 10 games. And the Guardians have the season series advantage over the White Sox. They are eight and five against the White Sox this season. They're five and two against the White Sox at Cleveland. Now your pitching problems for this series starting Friday night at 6:10 p.m. Central Time. 
It'll be Lance Lynn on the mound against Tristan McKenzie. And the youngsters throwing the ball really well this season for the Guardians. Saturday night, 5.10 p.m. Central Time. It's Johnny Cueto against Shane Bieber. And then on Sunday, note the time and the platform. This is the Peacock game. So it starts at 11.05 a.m. Central Time. It's Dylan Cease against Aaron Savali. And this will be on the Peacock app. And I'm not quite sure for those of us living in Chicago, if they're going to do what they did the first time when they had the game on Peacock between the White Sox and Red Sox, if that game will actually be available locally on the NBC channel, the local NBC channel. Uh, so keep in mind of that. It will not be available on NBC Sports Chicago. And for you, Jim, with Nashville, I think you have to watch it on Peacock instead of the MLB.tv app, right? Yeah, that might be a case where I have to decide whether I protest the idea of keep putting additional games on platforms that I need to subscribe to. So we'll see. I might have to watch that one like an hour and a half after the fact. Oh, all right. I'll just text you updates as it's happening live. Um, All right. This series Instead of quoting wins and losses for a particular pitcher, I'm kind of more fascinating what the team's record is when this pitcher starts games for them. Because Cleveland this year is 13-8 when Tristan McKenzie starts a game for him. The Guardians are 15-7 when Shane Bieber starts. And they're a 500 team when Aaron Savali starts a game for the Guardians. They're 7-7. So the Guardians are a pretty tough team already to beat. They get much tougher when Tristan McKenzie and Shane Bieber are, are on the mound. But we, I feel like we just had this conversation regarding the Houston Astros series, Jim, when we preview that series on Monday, that it's going to be tough for the White Sox to score because the Astros are so good in the run prevention side. We know that Cleveland is also good on the run prevention side. So does this series against Houston help the White Sox in preparation against the Guardians this weekend. That's one way to look at it. Like, yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that regard. Um, but yeah, I guess they shouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, also the, you know, the, the Guardians are number one in uh, strikeout rate. Your lowest strikeout rate, the Astros are too. So, I mean, uh, they don't have the power that Houston has, but the White Sox were able to mitigate that until the last game. So they, they did a pretty good job of uh, keeping the Astros in the park until things got out of hand. But that was fine. So... Yeah, they, they shouldn't be surprised that there isn't like a drastic style change. They basically are the Astros. I think the one thing that's a little bit um, disheartening is like the performance that they had against uh, Luis Garcia and just the uh, not being able to you know anticipate fastball or curveball. Like they seemed between uh, on those pitches, like saw some late swings on hanging curveballs and saw some late swings on 95, 96 down the middle. So I'm, you know, I guess I'm apprehensive about feeling great about this just because, uh, you know, we've seen how they struggle against the Guardians. I mean, they have more looks against McKenzie and Bieber and Savali than they do against the, what the Astros rolled out there. And, um, you know, the White Sox showed some ability to figure it out third time through, but just, you know, they still have the tendency, I think, to disappear against good right-handed pitching. And, you know, the Guardians have that. So I think it's going to have to be one in a similar fashion, like, three to two, four to three. Like that, that's how I, you know, watching the Astros, uh, you know, scores leading into this series and looking at just what they've done. Like when they lost, they lost by being held to one or two runs. Like they can be quieted and the White Sox did that effectively enough. And they just have to do it again against hopefully a lesser offense. Although I think it's funny, like, you know, Jose uh, Ramirez, 
by his standards is having a down month. Like I was looking at his August numbers, uh, 242, 292, 333, 625 OPS. Like numbers are not that great. 14 RBIs in 17 games. So just... <laughs> just be careful with the, with runners in scoring position. That's all. That's never been a problem for the White yeah. Sox. So just, uh, you know, RBIs are... I know that you know, a lot has been made about like, you know, RBIs mattering and such, but just, you know, I count them as kind of a narrative stat in terms of is somebody around when fun or important events happen? And he is like, he just makes himself available for uh, getting a run home, no matter just how well he's swinging the bat. I do want to remind everyone Friday night will be another Sox machine from the 108 watch party on playback. So come join us as we watch that game together between Lance Lynn and Tristan McKenzie. Great point about being in between a fastball and a curveball against Luis Garcia, Jim, from Thursday. Because Tristan McKenzie, I mean, that fastball and curveball combination that he has is is approaching elite standard. And I watched his start against the Toronto Blue Jays. And he made one mistake to Teoscar Hernandez. And we know just the type of power that Teoscar Hernandez has. And Hernandez was looking fastball and he did not miss. And... That ended up being the difference between the Guardians and Blue Jays at a 2-1 to loss for Cleveland uh, north of the border. But McKenzie is really developing into a strong pitcher for Cleveland, and that's going to be interesting to see if that carries over for the White Sox. If they cannot pick up McKenzie's throwing motion to know if a fastball or curveball is coming at them. And then with Shane Bieber, what's interesting is that it's always tough for the White Sox to hit Bieber in Cleveland, but the last time the White Sox faced Bieber, they scored six runs off Bieber, hitting three homers, a homer from Lurie Garcia, A.J. Pollock, and Aloy Jimenez. So that last performance on July 24th gives me a sliver of hope, Jim, that maybe the White Sox hitters can can punish Shane Bieber if given the opportunity. Yeah, they, I mean, that's the nice thing about this series that they just played is like they faced Justin Verlander twice and they came away with wins both times. So, um yeah, certainly the first game was more successful than the second game. Like they had to, um, you know, needed a, a miracle uh, double slash triple from Kevin. She's like effectively a triple for him that that worked out really well. And um, it wasn't the nine hits over three and two thirds innings like they saw the first time. But I think having the quality of at bats they had the first time carried over the second one thinking like, well, if we just keep seeing them, we'll get them. And I think finally breaking that streak against Bieber because Bieber, you know, we talked about the bases loaded situation like Bieber throws like that all the time, like just with the, the location able to throw outside and then further outside and just, you know, tease uh, hitters with that cutter that he throws and just expanding the plate and getting weak contact like the White Sox have been apt to fall into that trap. So hopefully, you know, the three homers, the outburst is what they need to realize like, oh, here's how we center them because we hadn't been able to do that for a couple of years now. Before we sign off on this podcast episode to get you ready for the weekend, again, the White Sox are chasing Cleveland in the American League Central. They're still at an opportunity to get the wild card as the White Sox are just two and a half games back in the wild card race. Right now, your American League playoff picture would be the Houston Astros as the number one seed. The Yankees would be the number two seed and that team is fading. The Guardians would be the number three seed. They would host the sixth seed, which would be the Toronto Blue Jays. And then your fourth seed right now, the top wildcard team, is the Seattle Mariners. If the season were to end, they would snap their postseason drought, and they'd be hosting that three-game series. I'm sure that would be one heck of a party in Seattle. 
And right now, the Tampa Bay Rays would be the number five seed in the American League. So your weekend schedule, and it's a lot of scoreboard watching, but this is what makes it fun as a baseball fan. The Mariners are in Oakland. The Blue Jays are facing the Yankees in a four-game series. The Rangers are at the Twins. The Royals are at the Rays. And the Red Sox are at the Orioles. Again, the Orioles are a half game ahead of the White Sox with a 61-57 and record. And, of course, the White Sox are at the Guardians. So it should be a fun weekend of baseball. Hopefully, it's a really fun weekend of baseball for the Chicago White Sox. And let's hope they get a, if they can get a series win, it'll be a very happy episode of the Sox Machine podcast on Monday. It'll be happier if they could sweep Cleveland, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I mean, Elvis Andrews is going to hit four homers this weekend, Jim. I mean, that's, that's, that's a for sure thing. So they should sweep. If Andrews has the series uh, you think he's going to have, then why <laughs> yeah, not sweep? That's true. That is true. But hopefully the White Sox offense picks up the pitching and hopefully the White Sox pitching pitches well as they did games one through three against Houston. Let's forget what happened on Thursday at Guarantee Rate Field. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And if you just discovered Sox Machine or you've been a longtime lurker of Sox Machine, you can help support us at patreon.com slash machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. You can sign up again at patreon.com slash machine. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball, and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.